Well, good morning, CBC. Um, it is always my pleasure to open up God's Word with you, to study God's Word with you. Uh, and as I was, I was thinking what to, to preach this morning, I think for me that's usually the, the, the hardest task when I'm given, when Patrick says, hey, can you preach? I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. And I had to think, what am I going to preach on? Um, I kept going back to think about our small group study, our study that we, that we did this fall in our small groups, about thinking about the, the, the idols that we discussed there, the things, the desires, I mean, the people that we elevate before Christ, before, uh, above Christ, above God, and it takes worship away from God. And I started thinking uh, about those desires and about how God, how God merely, uh, he doesn't merely call us to recognize those desires. That's not what God calls us to do. God calls us to holiness. He calls us to being transformed each day into the image of his son. So what I want to focus on today, having recognized those, those sinful desires in our heart and how they control us, and knowing that God's calling us to holiness, I want to focus on how, what is that change? What does that process of change look like? Or, or put it another way, how, how do we get from being stuck in a spiritual rut where we're not seeing growth to growing in excitement and in joy of seeing God working in us. Now we're going to spend, like Patrick said, all of January, January on that topic, and we're going into the details of that topic. But today I want to focus on just one aspect of change, one aspect of biblical change, and that is the theology of change. So open your Bibles, uh, if you would please, to Galatians 2. We're going to be in Galatians 2 this morning. We're looking at biblical change, change that make us more and more like Christ each day, change that deals with how we grow in our relationship to God. Now, we all need change. And the reason why I can say that confidently is because none of you are perfect. I'm not perfect. Yet God continues to grow us towards being like his son, God continues to grow us as husbands and wives. God grows us in our purity and our holiness. And we need change in our lives so that we could become more holy, closer to the Lord, closer to his son. So how do we change? How do we start that change? Does it start with, with listing out goals? Do we list out a set of goals and say, I'm going to get these goals and that will change me? Do we make a New Year's resolution? And say, by this time next year, I'm going to be more holy. Does it come down to maybe a better organized calendar? Or maybe setting up rules for yourself. Maybe it's just better habits. You know, getting those certain benchmarks. Like, I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. Now, those things are great. They don't necessarily bring about change in themselves. Here's the thing about biblical change. It doesn't start by looking at what you can do. Real change doesn't start that way. Real change looks at what Christ already did. Real change starts when you see Christ for who he is. You see what he accomplished on the cross, and in the light of that, you see who you are in Christ. So biblical change isn't just do better. Biblical change isn't just here are these do's and don'ts, here are these external behaviors, these behavior modifications that you have to make. Biblical change starts by looking at what your Savior did, understanding what Jesus did on the cross, 
and how that impacts how God sees you and how God is working in you. So we're going to see this in Galatians 2. And, and what we're going to see this morning is that in order for us to have biblical change, our change needs to be grounded in Christ. If we want to be biblically changed, if we want to look more like Christ with every day, we need to remember that, one, our righteousness comes from outside of us. Our righteousness comes from outside of us. We are forgiven and justified by God because of Christ's righteousness, not our own. So that's one. And two, we need to remember that we have died with Christ. It is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us, Christ who is, in work, who is um, at work in us. So what I'm talking about there, I could put it in theological terms. These are the, the, the heavy theological terms of justification and sanctification. We're going to be diving into those um, briefly. But if we allow these biblical truths to grip our hearts, if, if we walk in them and meditate on them, meditate on, on what the gospel tells us about these things, we're going to see continuous change. Those truths are going to cause us to change to be more like a Savior. So Galatians 2. We're going to be in verses 11, uh, verses 11 through 21. That's, that's the section I'm going to read. Uh, I think it's helpful, though, before I read it, to kind of give you a little bit of background here. Uh, so Paul's writing to the Galatians. Uh, there's, in Galatia, there has been these, these false teachers, uh, we call the Judaizers, who have been teaching the Galatians that, that faith in Christ isn't enough. That believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus isn't enough. That you need to add to that trust observance of the Mosaic law. You've got to uh, be circumcised, got to follow dietary restrictions, um, got to observe the Sabbath, all these things you've got to add, and then you can be righteous before God. Now, this is a big deal because uh, the gospel is so complete that if you add to the gospel, you're actually taking it away from the gospel. And certainly the apostles wouldn't stand for this. But what we're going to see is that Peter, Peter, like, like all of us are, Peter is susceptible to acting against what he believes is right. Peter is susceptible to following the idols of his heart and allowing someone or something else to grip his heart and make decisions based off that. But as we read this, look at what, what Paul says to Peter. Look how Paul lays out his argument. He's going to tell Peter to look at the Savior. He's going to tell Peter to look at what the gospel tells him and to let that rich theology lead him to change. So keeping them in mind, let's go to verse 11. Again, we're in Galatians 2. And I'm going to read through verse 21. So God's word says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, 
I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of law, since the works of law, no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Um, Let's pray before we continue. Father, we read this text and we are confronted with the fact that we at times, want to rely on works. But God, I just pray that the, 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 the grace given to us in the gospel, the justification you offer us, would just ignite our hearts, that we would follow you all the more, that we would trust in you all the more. And Lord, I just pray that as we study this familiar passage, that it would, it would hit us anew, Lord, that we would be refreshed in our desire to follow you and to trust in you and to submit ourselves to you as our Lord. I praise Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at verse 11. Paul here in verse 11 is recounting a situation that happened in Antioch for, for the benefit of the Galatians. Uh, and, and Paul and Barnabas had been ministering there in the church of Antioch for some time. Uh, Antioch had become the center of Gentile Christianity, it's a, Antioch was a big city. There's a lot of people there, uh, a lot of Jews there as well. And so if something happens in Antioch, you could pretty much be sure that all of Christianity would hear about it, even, even the church in Jerusalem. So Paul had most likely uh, been there for some time. He most likely returned from the Jerusalem castle, Council in Acts 15, where in Acts 15, if you remember, this is where uh, the apostles... And the leaders in the Jerusalem church says, yes, Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to be saved. They don't have to be circumcised to be uh, Christian. They don't have to follow the law. Um, now, the timeline there is a little, a little debated. Um, but what matters is that Peter, no matter what timeline you're looking at, Peter knew that Gentiles were not bound to the Mosaic law. Remember, Peter had that dream in Acts 10 of seeing that, um, that, that he could eat what was once unclean, God made clean. So Peter knew about that, that Gentiles were not bound to the Mosaic law. Uh, in fact, we, you see in, in this section, in verse 12 and in verse 14, um, Peter was eating and living like the Gentiles. But then we read that certain men from James came, and that's when things start to change for Peter. Now, we don't know what they said, but whatever they said 
triggered a fearful reaction in Peter. And Peter begins to, he begins to pull back from eating, from fellowship with the Gentiles. And it's not too much longer that other Jews join in. Barnabas plays along and he begins to separate from the Gentiles as well. And now you start to have this church that was once unified and enjoying fellowship being separated because the Jews needed to stay over here in order to, to eat clean and, and to, to be ceremonial pure, ceremonially pure. And then you have the Gentiles over here who are just believing in, in the Lord and wondering, well, should we be like Paul and Barnabas, or Peter and Barnabas? Should we be also separating ourselves and being clean and observing the Mosaic law? So eventually the Gentile believers begin to feel compelled to live like Jews. That simply putting their faith in Christ wasn't enough. And they wanted to be believers like Peter and Barnabas, then you have to eat like them. You have to observe the Mosaic law. And that's effectively what Peter was communicating with his actions. I don't think he was communicating that with the words. But through his actions, that's what he was communicating. So Paul's seeing all of this. And I'm sure Paul just is getting super frustrated. He's seeing Peter step away and says, Peter, what are you doing? You're playing right into the hands of the false teachers. By stepping away, you're, you're, you're stepping away from the Gentiles, you're giving them credibility. You're, and you're walking out of step of the gospel. Why are you doing this, Peter? Now, Paul knows why. Look at verse 12. This is, this, is, this is what gives us insight into Peter's heart here. Verse 12, it says that Peter withdrew himself from and, and hold himself aloof, so he wasn't fellowship with the Gentiles, fearing the party of the circumcision. He feared the Jews. He feared what the Jews could do for him or to him. He feared perhaps what the Jews could do to his home church in Jerusalem or what he could do to, his, to what the Jews could do to his reputation. After all, uh, Peter was the uh, apostle to the Jews. And so he didn't want his reputation to be hurt, right? All that is affecting Peter, is bringing in that fear. And based on that fear, Peter's making decisions to separate from what God has called holy, namely the people of God. Now reading this, you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wasn't Peter the one who boldly preached on the day of Pentecost, boldly preached to a bunch of Jews and saw thousands of Jews get saved? Like, yeah, that was the same Peter. It wasn't the same Peter who stood up to the council of Sadducees and the high priests, and he stood up to them and said, it is better to obey God rather than men. That is the same Peter. See, Peter, Peter had the right theology. Peter experienced the grace of God himself. He saw the grace of God go to the Gentiles. But what we see here is that the, the fear of man crept into his heart. And over time, he allowed that fear of man to control him. He allowed that fear of man to override the truth of the gospel. And so Paul says, and that's why Paul says in verse 14, that, that he was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, literally saying that he was walking out of step of the gospel. And so this brings us to our first point this morning. Very Straightforward point. The point is, we all need change. We all need change. What happened to Peter happens to, to all of us. 
that we, sh- we shouldn't assume that once we get saved, the sins that we, that we struggle with in our, in, in our past isn't going to come, uh, come up again. Or once, this, once we've overcome a past sin, that we're never going to fail into that sin again. That's not what happened. We don't see that what's happening with Peter. Peter dealt with the fear of man before, and you can see it creeping up again. And the reason why we shouldn't assume that because uh, it is because the moment we take our eyes off Jesus, the moment we take our eyes off the truth of the gospel, this is where fear and greed and anger, lust, Right? All those, those, those sinful desires start to crop up. They begin to take hold. And, so, and then we make decisions based on those things rather than making decisions based on who God is and based on what God has done. This actually keeps us from change. When we hang on to things that we exalt, that we worship, we hang on to things that we serve over serving Christ, over worshiping Christ. And at that point, losing that thing, losing that idol is more costly and weightier to us than what we've gained in Christ. And so that's when, when idols have taken over, right? That's when those sinful desires have crept in and, and we allow them to sit on the throne of our hearts. So we got to ask yourself, ourselves, what is influencing us more than God this morning? What is holding, the, holding ransom, the freedom you ought to have in Christ? Is it fear of man like Peter? That you keep yourself from choosing to honor God, keep yourself from sharing the gospel, from standing up from what is right, because you care too much about what people think of you? Is it control? That you have to hang on to things because you trust yourself more than, than trusting God? Is it love of money? Fear of losing your health? Maybe losing a certain relationship? So because you don't want to lose that relationship, you're going you're gonna to keep Christ in your pocket? The list could go on and on and on about what are those different desires and idols. But wh- whatever it is, it's keeping you from change. It's robbing you from the peace, joy, and love that you have in Christ. And like Peter, those things are going to rip you away from fellowship with other believers and it's, and it's going to keep you from resting on the finished work of Christ. So we all need to change. We all struggle with those things in our hearts. So how do we change? Well, this is the way we go back to the gospel. We stop and stare at the amazing grace we have in Christ. And that's exactly where Paul takes Peter. And so this brings us to our second point this morning. So yes, we all need to change, but but change starts when we remember that our righteousness comes from Christ. Change starts when we remember that our righteousness comes from Christ. Now, let's go back to our text here. Paul sees how Peter's acting and how it's affecting the church in Antioch. And so Paul, it says, publicly confronts Peter to his face. It is a straightforward public confrontation here. He, Paul needs to see the Antioch, he needs the Antioch church to see this. He, uh, he wants the Galatians to read this because it's, in, it's imperative for what the gospel means. And I love what he doesn't tell Paul, uh, what Paul doesn't tell Peter. He doesn't tell Peter, hey, Peter, can you, can you just stop doing that? Uh, I just need you to change your actions. He doesn't merely focus on the actions of Peter, 
Although maybe in that dialogue, I'm sure there was one point where like, he, where he actually tells him to stop doing that. But what he writes here, Paul focuses on the practical theology that needs to be lived out. Paul is talking to his brother in Christ about the theology of the gospel so that his brother could change. So let's look, let's look at what Paul says. So starting at the, the middle of verse 14, this is what Paul says to Peter. Paul says, if you, Peter, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature. That is that we, we are Jews by birth. That's what, he's, that's what he's alluding to by nature. We are Jews by nature, by birth, and, and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, Peter, this is what you know, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith and not by works of the law. Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Okay, so let's break that down a little bit. He says in verse 14, or verse uh, uh, 15, that we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, Paul, what Paul's not saying here is that Paul isn't saying that, that he, Paul and, and Peter don't sin. That's not what he's saying. Uh, of course they do. But Paul is using the language of these false teachers to kind of make a point. He said, we may not be like these sinners, right? These sinners, these Gentiles. We may not be like these sinners, but guess what? We still need to be justified by works. Uh, we still need to be justified by faith because we know justification by works leads nowhere. We can't be justified by works. We can only be justified by faith in Christ. So even us Jews who aren't sinners of these Gentiles, like the Gentiles, even us Jews believe that Christ is our only hope for justification. And verse 16, he uses this word justified three times. Now, this is where we get to the theology of change. This word justification or justified is a heavy-duty, uh, heavy-hitting theological word. But it is, it is a marvelous word filled with, with grace, filled with hope. It is technically a legal term to declare Let's say a judge, you're standing before a judge. That judge is declaring the person standing in front of them righteous. That is their status. That status is, is the, the righteous. The opposite of this is condemnation. So in condemnation, you're standing before a judge, and the judge says you're guilty. Okay? They're, they're declaring what is. So this legal term, that it tells us what God declares about deliver, believers. That the judge, the judge of all the earth, God himself, has declared you and me as believers, he, de he has declared us righteous. Now, there's so much to unpack here. I, I, it's, it's worth the time. Uh, because as we, as we understand justification, it, this alleviates our need, or our, our, our need to feel that we have to earn God's favor. Justification gives you peace on where you stand before God and frees you to pursue him. Not as, not as someone who, who needs to prove themselves to God. That's not, justification won't do that, but justification will free you to pursue, one, to pursue God, to pursue Christ-likeness as one who has been accepted by God as his son and daughter. It is at the crux of what it means to become a Christian is this justification. So let me, let me put it this way. 
kind of do a little story here. Imagine that you are a defendant in a courtroom. Okay, you're on trial for crimes you surely committed. The, uh, the prosecutor has laid out uh, all the evidence and it's undeniable that you committed these crimes. You know you're guilty, you know you've done it, and the sentence for these crimes is death. Now, let me pause here and say, okay, Sergio, that's a bit extreme. I don't think I would ever be in that situation, and I hope none of you are in that situation, where you committed a crime that's worthy of death, right? And you might be right. You're probably right in that the laws here on Earth, the laws here in California and the United States, you probably won't commit laws that will, um, that the judgment is death. But what the Bible tells us is that we've all sinned against God. The Bible tells us that we sinned against a holy God, that we've gone against his commandments, we lusted in our hearts, we coveted things, we served idols, we took the Lord's name in vain. The Bible tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin, the, the penalty of that sin is death is eternal hell and separation from God. So you are in this courtroom. You are guilty before the judge of the, of the earth. So let's go back to that courtroom. We're guilty. We're waiting for that judge to make judgment, or to, to, to make his judgment. He hear the gavel, you know, hit the block, and he says, not guilty. Not guilty. Stunned, you look at the judge and say, judge, I did all those things. I deserve those punishments. And, and I know you're a just judge. How come I'm not receiving the sentence I deserve? The judge looks over to you and says, yeah, yeah, you did all those things. You deserve punishment. But that man over there who's being shackled, he's innocent. And he said he'd gladly take your place. That he'll die instead of you and you're free to go. Now, that's an amazing story, right? You, you, like if you were in that story, you would feel greatly indebted to that man. But l let me say this. That, that story falls short of justification. That's not justification. That's not what the Bible says happens to you or to me when we believe. Justification is not just being pardoned for sin. It's not just being cleansed and then, and then the, the judge says, okay, go on to go. Try not to sin again. If that was the case, we would wind back up in front of the judge with the same verdict. But Jesus Christ has taken the punishment of all your sins. When Jesus died on the cross and he said it is finished, he was saying that transaction, all the sin has been laid on him and been paid for. It's done. He atoned for all your sin. I like how Hebrews 10, 12 says it. It says that when Jesus died on the cross, he offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Well, let me say this. Justification goes further than that. It's not just that all sins have been wiped away before God. It goes further than that. God declares that we are righteous before him. It's not that God just says you're innocent and that's it. I have nothing against you. Go ahead. Go, uh, you, could, you could go live your life. That's not what justification is. Justification says that not only are you innocent, not only are you free from any wrong before God, but that you are righteous before him, that you are credited with living a perfect life. 
How is that possible? It is because while Jesus took on our sin, all our sin, and forgiven it because of his death on the cross, we are given his righteousness. The perfect life Jesus lived is now credited to our account. 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? He made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be, uh, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Even in Galatians, Paul says later in Galatians that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of law, having become the curse for us. And even later he says that we are clothed with Christ, that we are wearing the righteousness of Christ. That's what justification is. It doesn't just stop with forgiving the sins that you committed in the past when you first came to Christ. Your sins are forgiven, but you also have the righteousness of, God, of Christ before God. And how do we get this righteousness? How are, we to, how are we justified before God? Paul's point here to Peter is saying it's not by works. It's not by keeping the law. It's not by being good. In fact, Peter, you know the works of the law can't save us, can't make us right by, before God. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul says, you become justified by God by faith. We are justified by faith. This is why justification is so amazing. It's not by our doing. It's not that we don't have to earn our justification. We can never earn our justification. It is only by faith. The means by which we receive this justification is simply through faith. It's simply by believing that our, all our, our righteousness is earned from Christ. That Christ died for our sins and because of that, and because we believe, we are declared righteous because of his righteousness. Apart, apart from our works. I like how Paul says in Ephesians, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, if you're thinking about that courtroom setting, and when I say that courtroom setting, you're thinking, I know I'm guilty before God. And you haven't put your faith in Christ yet. Then the Bible says you are going to be held accountable for your sins. That judgment of death, that judgment of hell will be given to you. But God can declare you righteous. God can forgive your sins and give Christ righteousness to you if you will trust in Jesus Christ right now. If you turn to God right now, turning away from your sin, turning away from the desire to justify yourself before God, and you just cling to Jesus as your Savior, you cling to Jesus as your righteousness, as your, uh, as your Lord, you will sit in your chair right now justified before God. That's what it means by justification by faith. You're wearing, wearing the righteousness of Christ. Now, for those of us who do believe, this serves as a foundation for change. You can't change without justification. Let's, look, let's apply it to Peter. Peter's being reminded here that he doesn't need to change his actions because of fear of man. If he goes back to the gospel, he can continue living in freedom of, in, in Christ, living in that security that, that he has in the gospel because Peter has been declared righteous. He is deemed righteous before God and can therefore live for God only. He doesn't need the approval of man if he knows 
he has the approval of God because of Christ. I think for the Galatians, the Galatians needed to hear this because they're thinking the gospel wasn't enough. They're thinking that they have to do extra works in order for them to be saved. What a burden. Jesus' righteousness does not need to be supplemented. By faith in Christ, they are justified before God. What about us? How does justification help us change? A couple ways that I thought of. Justification first gives us peace when we fail. Justification gives us peace when, you, when we fail. If you fall into sin, God doesn't at that point say, I'm going to have to take back that legal declaration I made. No, Christ's righteousness is still imputed onto you. You still have Christ's righteousness. And yet, you know what? We, we tend to look at a performance, right? We tend to look at our recent sins. We tend to look at our failures as a, as a father, as a mother, as a friend in our jobs. We, took, we look at those everyday pressures as a barometer on where we stand before God. That's not living in justification by faith. That's not living in step with the gospel. Paul, in verse 21, says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And I think sometimes we live that way. Sometimes we live in a way where, where we're acting as if Christ died needlessly, that we have to do something to earn God's, God's favor again. Let me put it this way. Let me ask this question. After you sin, do you ever feel like you can't go to God right away? That for some indeterminate amount of time, you have to be doing good works before you could go to God? Well, that's living out of step of the gospel. That's neglecting or rejecting the truth of justification. How about this way? If you, if you feel that you deserve heaven more than a, than a family member who, who badmouths Christ, who always takes his name in vain, or you feel like you deserve heaven more than some politician that you're against. That's the same deal. You're nullifying the grace of God. Jesus died for you so that you could have his righteousness. You have it as a gift, not from, because of anything inside you. It never started with you. you. There's nothing you've done. You have it because it was a gift by God that you accepted because of faith, that you received by faith. This means we can change not to prove that God made a right decision in, in choosing us and making us his sons and daughters. We change as a result of being just justified. We change because we want to be more like Christ, because of where we stand before the Lord, where we stand righteous before him. So we want to change to be more like Christ in that freedom that we have. Okay, so justification... Uh, also uh, keeps us from changing for the wrong reasons. I think we hear about, we hear justification, we hear, we hear how little we're, we're or how, how it's not on our, our works at all, right? It's, it's a, completely the grace of God that received by faith. We hear that, and I think there's a part of us, there's a pride in us that we say, uh, uh, this grace, yes, it's freely given, but I want to claim a little bit part, a little part of it for myself. Yes, I'm justified by, by faith, but I think I could strengthen my position before God by doing X, Y, or Z. 
As soon as you add that, then you're out of step of the gospel. That's not what the gospel says. Paul deals with this in the next verse. Look, look at verse 17. Verse 17 he says, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? So what is he saying here? He's saying, the, like, so the false teachers, the false teachers have said something like, okay, if you're justified by, by, by Christ, and that means you neglect the Mosaic law, you neglect observing all this Mosaic law, then you're actually becoming a sinner. And Paul says, well, yes, I'm justified by grace, by grace. And yes, I'm found like the Gentile sinners. I'm, I'm eating with them and living like they are. But that last question, it, it's, it's, it's the, the, the killer here. So he asks the question, does that make Christ a minister of sin? Does that mean when I get justified by grace, by justified in Christ, that I go live in the freedom of Christ, that now Christ is the minister of sin? Christ is an agent of sin. He says, no, certainly not. may never be. It's not sin to stop depending on the law and trusting Christ instead. It's not sin to enjoy the unity of fellowship that we have in Christ. In fact, he kind of doubles down on this in verse, in verse 18. So verse 18, he says, so, so no, Christ is not a minister of sin. For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What did Paul destroy? Tell you what he didn't destroy. He did not destroy the law. It's not what he's saying here. He didn't destroy the law. In Romans 7, he says the law is good and righteous and holy. And later on in Galatians, he says the law leads us to Christ. So he didn't destroy the law. What he tore down is a system of religion that is used to be justified before God. And what Paul is saying is that if I go back to that and I try to justify myself before God through the law instead of Christ, then I'm a transgressor. I think, he, I think there's this picture that I think might help. Imagine the law is like a railroad track or the word of God is like a railroad track. And, and on that track, you stay on that track, it guides you to Christ. And the train here, we, we have a train, the train's sitting on the track. The engine of the train is, is powered by the grace of God working in us. It's powered by the Holy Spirit working in us. And you know what our faith is? Our faith, all it does is it couples the power of God to the word of God. All we're doing is saying, yes, the Holy Spirit is working in me and I'm trusting in the Lord and that's what's going to drive me forward to Jesus. That's what drives me to become more holy. We're saved by grace through faith. And in that, that's justification. And in that, God works and moves us to holiness. Now, here's what the Pharisees did to that. The Pharisees took that track, and instead of making it a track, instead of being empowered by the Holy Spirit, they made it a ladder. And they said, okay, here's this ladder. Ladder goes to heaven. Um, there's no engine here, no power. Um, just climb it. Just climb this ladder and be better, and then there we go. Then you could get your way to heaven. That's what Paul tore down. God never intended the good works that we do, the disciplines of prayer, reading the Bible, uh, going to church, obeying your parents. God never intended those things to earn you righteousness before him. In fact, if that's what you're trusting in, then you don't have justification. You aren't righteous before him. Instead, all you have is this ladder 
that gets you nowhere. It's time to step off the ladder and go down the train. Live your life by faith. Any change needs to have this justification as a foundation. You are not changing to earn righteousness. That's not why we change. You already have that righteousness in Christ. That's the whole point of justification. You aren't changing to make up for some past sins. You aren't changing so that you could um, uh, make up for a weakness or, or a perceived inadequacy. You aren't changing to feel justified to the people around you, right? That's going back to fear of man. We see those, those idols in our heart. We see those desires in our heart. And we say, I don't need any of that because Christ has met every need. I stand approved and righteous before God. What else do I need? And you, you know what this does for your life? This frees you to pursue Christ without burden, without fear of, of falling off a ladder, with the confidence in your standing before God. So biblical change starts with righteousness that we have in Christ, but it continues, and I would say it's, it, it, biblical change is fueled by the life we have in Christ. So look, look at where Paul goes. Look at verse 19. Okay, Paul's going to go in verse 19. We get to our, our, our third point here of the, of the morning. We change because Christ is in us. So we change with the foundation of justification because we have Christ's righteousness, but we also change because Christ is in us. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He's saying in verse 19 that, that when he says he dies to the law, the law has no hold over him. He used, he used to justify himself by looking at the law. You guys remember Philippians 3, right? Philippians 3, he's like, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. I, to zeal, I, I persecuted the church. And he says, I count that all as loss. That stuff is lost for the sake of Christ. He died to that. So then in verse 19, what does it mean though when it says he died through the law? Through the law, he died to the law. He's speaking here of his unity with Christ. Because look, look at the flow of thought here. In verse 19, he died to the law, okay, so that what? So that he might live to God. And then how did he live to God? Well, in verse 20, there's a union with Christ here. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, you see that there? Christ lived a perfect life. Christ fulfilled the law. He did what we could never do. Christ fulfilled the law and living a blameless life, yet he died, Jesus died as the curse of the law for, for Paul's sake and for our sake. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying that through the law, through Jesus living that law and dying, I died to the law. And the Paul who depended on self-reliance, the Paul who depended on self-confidence through the flesh by obeying the law, by showing his works, that Paul died with Jesus on the cross. And what did Paul get from that? Well, Paul got life. He died so that he might live to God. Paul says he wanted to live a life where Christ is with him, where the Holy Spirit is empowering him, where the Holy Spirit is working in him, changing him day by day to become more like Christ. This is what it means for Christ living in us. Their union is not only with his death, that, that he died and, and he died for our sins, that we died with him, but our union is with his resurrection as well. 
Ephesians 2 is great for this. Ephesians 2, God made us alive with Christ, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our union with Christ is essential for our change. That's why Paul says in verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in in me. Now, Christ is alive today. Christ rose from the dead, went to heaven. It's, It's in heaven presently. But yet Christ also gave us a promise, right? Christ said that he would always, he would be with us always until the end of the age. He said that because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. You are never on your own. Being in Christ, Christ in you is a spirit at work in you. You are a new creation in Christ. That means there's power to change. That means you have a God of the universe working in you to change. And we know from Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, you can expect change to happen. You're not, like, you're not sitting on this railroad track of, 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 the, of, of the Bible with a little hand card and trying to move down the track. You know little hand cards where you, you, you pump it and, and, it, and it moves you down? Hand cards are, are powered by the power of its pa- passengers. That's not you. You're in a train that's powered by the Holy Spirit to move you down the track toward the Christ-likeness. Now, let me kind of counter something. Does that mean you just sit back and say, well, God's going to do it. I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to sit on this train, sit my little Coke, and I'll be fine. No, that's not what that means. Because look at what Paul goes in verse 20. The Verse 20, he says, so Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I don't, I don't know if you see what Paul's doing there. He isn't saying that I'm just going to, to live my life the way I want. He's not saying, well, uh, I, hope God does, I hope God does a change and grows me, but until then, I'm just going to sit here. It's nothing like that. Paul is saying that he's living his life by faith in Jesus, each day placing his faith in Christ. And, and, and I love the way he describes the Son of God. I mean, look how personal it is. He, he places his trust, his faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself up for me. I don't think Paul gets any more personal than that. I can't think of any other personal way of describing the Son of God than in Galatians 2 for for Paul. We start to see change when we choose to live by faith. When we give up trying to be your hero. When we we give up trying to, to change on our own efforts. And instead decide to cling to the rails of God's word by faith. We need to choose daily to trust God. We need to choose to give up the fear of man, to give up the need of of doing things our way. We let go of all of that and we just hang on to God's word. And more importantly, we we cling to the Son of God. We put our faith in the Son of God. Now, if you don't see change, change doesn't happen, then perhaps it's because you're relying on the external rules rather than the internal working of the Holy Spirit. Kind of interesting, if you look at justification, justification, you don't look at yourself, right? You look outside, you look at Jesus. And that's what justifies you. 
but sanctification, growth in Jesus, growth in Christ. You don't look outside to external rules and have the external rules change you. You look to Christ. You look to the work of the Spirit. And we see this when we tell ourselves things like, uh, you know, maybe I just need more accountability. Maybe I just need to, to read another book. Maybe I just need to read the Bible more. Those things are great. But if you're treating those things as a magic pill, that you just do them and uh, you're changed, then you're not going to the one who's working inside of you. You're not clinging to Christ. You're clinging to works again. You need to cling to the Savior. This is the Savior who secured you with his righteousness, who loved you and gave himself up for you. That God is in you. That God is, is working in you. And you can expect change as you cling to him. So we've seen that if we want to see real change in our lives, we want to see biblical change, we need to be grounded in Christ. We need to remember that our righteousness is secured in Christ, not in what we do, secured in Christ, and we live in Christ by faith. Now, I want to take you and close with this. Let's go to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 has this great picture of change. And then we're, going to, we're probably going to be diving more into it uh, in January. But Jan, uh, Jeremiah 17 has a great word picture of change. In, in Jer- uh, Jeremiah 17, we're going to be focusing on verses 5 through 8 very quickly. And this is a contrast between someone who puts her trust in man and someone who puts her trust in the Lord. And the Lord gives us two pictures here. Okay, so let's, let's read it. So Jeremiah 17 I'm going to start in verse 5, and I'll read verse 5 and 6 first. So verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert. He will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitants. This person who places their trust in people, whether that's placing their trust in themselves, placing their trust in in the people around them. For Israel, this is placing their trust in nations around them. For people who place their trust in people, this person, God says, is not going to grow. God said they will be living in a desolate, dry place. And not just that, but worse. God says this person's cursed. If you're trusting in man, for your justification, you're cursed. You've got to trust in the Lord because when you trust in the Lord, look what happens. Look at verse 7. Blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. I love that. Trusting in the Lord and trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when he comes, but his leaves will be green. He will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. This is a person who trusts in the Lord. A person who trusts in the Lord, there's nourishment there. There's vitality there. There's life there. Fruit continuously, continuously grows there. What a contrast. We have our life with Christ. We have died to the law. We have died to works. We have died to us trying to earn our way to heaven. We've given that, given that up and rest in the righteousness we have in Christ. We have been declared righteous because of our union with him. 
And that means there's vitality, vitality in, there's life in your life, right? You're living in your life. You have life because we have placed our faith in the Lord. He, and he is at work in us so we can expect fruit. We can expect to see change. Now there's something else here in verses 7 and 8. This growth isn't in a perfect garden. This growth doesn't happen in this ideal greenhouse with, with ideal conditions. Look at what, there's, what there is. There's heat there. There's a year of drought there. Listen, we face, we know this, right? We face trials. We face heat when we're tempted, when our life takes a scary change, when there's conflict, there's heat there. But what's the difference between the shrub in the desert and this tree whose, whose roots are in the stream? The difference is that this tree stays green. The tree continues to grow and to produce fruit even though there's heat. Even in trials we could grow. Even in the harshest conditions of life, you can expect change. Why? Because Christ is alive in you. Because Christ is the living water that quenches all thirst. He satisfies your every need. He gives us his righteousness and he lives in us and is at work in us. So because of everything he did, we can live by faith. We can walk each day knowing that that day we're going to become more like Christ because he's at work. We can make decisions to follow him and to obey him because he's at work, because no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. We can see real biblical change because we have a Savior who loves us. And we have a Savior who gave himself for us. So to see change, you got to trust in your Savior. Go to him and rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the amazing, gracious theology of justification that we do not earn our own righteousness, but we have righteousness in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would show us times that we are not living like that, times that we are trying to earn our righteousness again, again, times when we are um, doubting are standing before you. So God, I just pray that you would change us, that you would help us to trust in you and that we would see the fruits. We would see your work and we would leave glorifying you because of your work in us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you for redeeming us. Lord, help us to walk in the ways that you want us to walk in. Praise Jesus' name, amen.